Well, we're talking about temptation. Last week we uh, attempted to understand temptation, that it's something that is the right thing, enjoyed or pursued in the wrong way. And this week we're going to talk about overcoming temptation. Now, not in the Bob Newhart way, like, just stop it, right? I mean, have you seen that sketch? Stop it, right? Just stop it. It's going to sound a little bit like that when we read through this Colossians passage. But there's something powerful underneath what and in and through, woven in and through what's being said. So would you turn with me now to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 5, 5 through 17. Hear God's word. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. See seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May God bless us this morning through this, his holy word. Let us pray. God bless us now, not only to understand your word in your minds, but to receive it into our hearts, that through our lives we may live it. In Jesus' name, amen. A friend of mine uh, said he yielded to temptation recently. He succumbed to temptation. It called to him. And he told me I could tell you this story. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but he told me. He gave me permission to tell you this story. He said there he was standing there, and it called out to him from the pantry, from high above the shelf. And the way he described it was such vivid detail. It was like it was calling to him. He said it was behind the Quaker oats, just waiting for him. Peanut butter. Peanut butter. I saw a meme recently that said, it talked about your abdominal muscles, and your abs. It said this, it said, abs are great, but have you tried peanut butter? All right, so temptation, temptation. A lot of times what we do is we yield to it. And you know, since Freud, Freud has, Sigmund Freud had a, has, still has a big influence on our culture. And in fact, 
probably one of the, the primary doctrines of our culture today, of our day and age, is just simply that feelings are sacrosanct, that, that feelings are not to be questioned, that if you're feeling something, then, then there's something valid to it that, that shouldn't be rep repressed in any way, shape, or form. Not that we should guide our feelings, not that we need leadership, not that there are other parts of us that should inform our feelings, but that we should just give ourselves over to our feelings. And, and, uh, and, and there have been a number of studies done recently, uh, study after study after study, that contradicts this idea that we're simply to gratify what our immediate, our immediate sensations are telling us to do. That you can change, alter the chemistry of your brain to, uh, to, to, to want more and more of something that can give you less and less. You can begin to rewire your brain. It says this, that we may be turning ourselves into mindless pleasure junkies, handing over our free will for the next dopamine hit. Now, a lot of times when we're, when we're looking at something like this vice list and this, the, the, this call to virtue, a lot of times the way I think we hear it is as moralism, as just try harder, as just sort of gin up enough kind of effort to make things happen. function like. Uh, there's, there's a motivation, not only that what is good, but good for you. Good for you. That, that we don't so much break God's law as we do break ourselves on it. Picture yourself walking by, the, by, by the, 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 a bluff, a beautiful bluff, and you're, you're walking on the edge of a cliff, right? I mean, there's a law of gravity right just inches from you, right? The law of gravity and the consequences of it. Do you break the law of gravity, right? I mean, as somebody said, you don't need a, a, a parachute to skydive. You just need a parachute to skydive more than once, right? So you have to be careful by the side of a cliff because you don't break the law of gravity. You break yourself on it. So too with God's law. And this is a way to look at it. I remember, I'll, I'll never forget this definition of fitness when I was uh, in college. It, it, it's never left me. It's just, it's just this simple vision here. Fitness is the ability to meet the daily rigors of life without incurring a debilitating injury. That's fitness. Fitness is the ability, right? How do you know you're fit? Well, you can meet the daily rigors of life without incurring a debilitating injury. Let's look at temptation that way because this is the gift that God has given us in his word that we can operate we can operate according to his original design. We can kind of put that old self aside and we can embrace the new self. How do we do that? That's the question this morning. We put off and we put on or we turn from and turn towards. We need something to turn from and something to turn towards. So let's take a look at it in those two moves. Turning from and turning towards. First, we turn from. We turn from this vice list, this list of of don'ts through the power of confession. 
And really, this sermon is all about how confession is powerful. It's powerful. Because when we confess, we get something out. I mean, at least we name it. And it begins to lose its power over us when we admit, when we name it, when we say what's going on. So we turn from through the power of confession. You know, verses 5 through 11 is really just sort of a, a list of things that, that, that we need to confess. And Paul is saying it for them. He's saying, look, here's a list of things that, that we typically as human beings in our frailty fall into. It's, it's borrowed from Greek culture. You know, it's, it's, it's a vice list. And it's, and it's sort of a typical, I mean, they would have understood what that is. I mean, it would have been a very familiar list of, of, um, uh, of ethics at the time, uh, where the line is drawn between right and wrong. You know, but naming them has a power to it. Confessing it has a power to it. It's a little like this. You know, uh, teachers are taught, uh, you know, that if you name something that's going on in the classroom, it removes the power. It's kind of like, you know, somebody's tapping their pencil every time the teacher starts to talk, right? They're quiet and they ask a question, no pencil tapping. Then she starts to talk again, it's tap, 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 tap. And if she says, I know what you're doing, Tommy. Every time I start to talk, you're tapping your pencil, right? And the power drains out of that harassment, right? It drains out of it. It's just like that. That's what Paul is doing. He's naming the things that trip us up. Let's think about that. Let's drill a little deeper on that. How do we do that? A lot of times what we do is we personalize confession, and we, we think of it like this. We think, all right, what have I done today? What have I done this week? How do I get that out? Well, you know, we can never plumb the depths of what that is. And so Paul is borrowing a list. It's a little like this. It's like, it's like these, it's called a set prayer. In the book of common prayer, you can see printed in your bulletin, uh, on, at the bottom of the, of the worship flow here, you can see prayer of confession. This is just pulled from the book of common prayer. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done, by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. It's a beautiful prayer. Somebody spent a lot of time on that. Not only that, it was honed over a long period of time. You know, it, this is a different style of worship, and in, in the later service, uh, we have 52 prayers, one for each week. And some of them have been borrowed, but most of them I've written, and I've rewritten them year after year after year, tweaked them. That's what the Book of Common Prayer is. It, it, is, to, it is a set prayer, and a lot of times, you know, and when I was growing up, when I was really young, we went to a more formal church, and that was, that was all the only kind of prayer you had, was just these set prayers. And it just seemed so distant and impersonal and formal. But it wasn't that the, the, the set prayers were the problem. It was that there just wasn't a culture. There wasn't this sense. There wasn't leadership that said, we need to connect with these things personally. And, and how do you do that? And so a lot of times what evangelical, broad evangelical culture has said is that, well, it, has to be, it just has to be thought up in the moment. And so there's, there is a correction here that's, that I think is good. Uh, from the 1970s, really, the, the trend is that, 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 that we personalize things by just being spontaneous, and that if it's going to be authentic, it's got to come from you in the moment, not necessarily. You know, sometimes uh, 
people will want to rewrite their vows, right? And, and they want to say their vows. If you, if you did this, it's fine. I'm sure it was great. You know, I mean, I'm sure it was a beautiful thing that, that you all wrote your vows. But more often than not, what happens is when I introduce a young couple to the vows that have been uh, centuries old, you know, just used again and again, they're like, wow, it's hard to improve on that. It's like, yeah, somebody thought it through. What are you doing? It's not like you're making up what you're doing when you get married. It's the same thing with what's going on here. It's not like we're, we're inventing new ways to sin. I mean, it, this is the same old, same old. We're trying to center life around ourselves, and here are the ways we tend to do that. And so a guy named Yaroslav Pelikan put it this way when it comes to set prayers. He says, what you have received as an inheritance of tradition, take on as task. For in so doing, you make it your own. How do you learn language in the first place? How do you learn anything that's valuable? Through repetition. You can internalize, in other words, you can internalize words that have been provided for you. And when you speak them, you name them. And like that teacher in the classroom, like Paul listing these things, the power begins to drain out of them when we confess to God. That's the first step. And you say, Tim, well, I've done that, and it has been sort of rote, and I haven't seen the power, you know, because there's this one sin that I keep repeating. I mean, it's like a pattern in my life. Can't seem to beat it. Can't seem to defeat it. Okay, well, we have to take the second step. Not just what you're doing, but why are you doing it? Do you know, and can you confess, can you speak the sin underneath the sin, that there's a motivating need that you have, do you understand what that is? You know, Augustine said, Lord, help me understand you so that, help me understand myself so that I may understand more about you. The more that we understand what's driving us, the more that we can name it, then the power that temptation has over us can begin to drain out of us. Why are you doing what you're doing? Can you name it? And Paul gives us the method by which we begin to explore those things that are underneath those infractions, that vice list. Not only what that, that vice list is, but what's driving us. What need is there? How are we trying to provide for ourselves? How do we do that? We confess to one another. Oh, yeah. Yeah, now you're going, oh, no, no, no. Now you're going from preaching to meddling. I'm not going to confess my sins to somebody else. Are you kidding me? No way. I understand that. I understand that. But this is what he's saying, the key, verses 12 and 13. He's casting a vision for a different kind of community. Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness. And then he goes with the one and others. Bearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint against the other, forgiving one another. You have to voice that. You have to voice that complaint. Right? Here's what happens. So a complaint is that a lot of times we think of complaining as whining. You have to understand complaining is a good thing. It's, it, it's to just say, hey, there's a gap between what I expected and what happened. And, and when you use that to hurt somebody, that's a criticism. But complaining is important. We need to be able to assert, here's what I'm expecting. Here's, here's what's going on. Complaint is good. And when we do that, we begin to bring to the surface the, the difference between what we begin to explore not only the what, but the why of what we're doing. Because we have to deal with each other. We can't pretend. Now, let me give you an example. 
Have you ever used the train as an excuse for why you're late? <laughs> right? I'm laughing because I know you have. And so have I. Right? Now, why, why did you have to do that? Why do you have to make an excuse for anything? Why, why, why do you have to cover for yourself? That's the word. What are we covering? What are we covering? Dr. Tom, uh, Dr. Kirk Thompson has a book called Shame. And he says this, shame coaxes us into pretending sin is not as bad as it seems. Now, why do we do that? You know, it's no big deal that I lied. Yeah, I left, really, I left late because I was doing too much. I'm booking myself too tight. I'm overly anxious. I have to be busy. I'm worried about making ends meet. And so all of that is the reason why I was late, but I'm just going to say the train made me late. But do you know what's really driving you? The frenzy of your schedule, perhaps? You have no margin? I mean, I'm just, I'm just coming up with a p- potential why here for you. And, and there's shame in that. There's shame in it, right? There's shame in the fact that we don't trust. There's shame in the fact that we're worried. There's shame in the fact that we're afraid of the future. And all of that is underneath this tip of the iceberg. Well, the train made me late. And so, as Kurt Thompson says, shame coaxes us into pretending. Sin is not as bad as it seems. Why? Because we don't want to deal with the why. We don't want to deal with the shame. But Paul is driving us into each other's lives. He's saying one another four, four different times in this passage. There's so much in this passage, but one of the things that, that it gets repeated is one another. Right? Do not lie to one another. Bearing with one another. Forgiving each other. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. Teaching and admonishing one another? Admonishing one another? Uh, here's, here's why. Here's the reason why. Here, we're going to keep falling into the same pattern unless we begin to recognize that our nature, this is Kurt Thompson again in his book called Shame, our nature is to live as if we can do everything on our own. And indeed, that notion comes from the heart of evil itself. You see, that's why we're here. I mean, we, we want to get better. And what's the heart of getting better is leaving the old self that's centered on self and taking on the new self that's centered on Christ. Now, we're going to talk about the fact that we have a new self. But first, let me just underscore one thing. You see, when we deal with each other, like on the level of why we're doing and what's really going on and when we can't, when we expose that, when we name it and the power begins to drain out of it, what we begin to discover is our failures are not final. And the, the things that we thought were really shameful that we confessed to this person, we said, look, here's, here's the real reason why I was late. You begin to experience in the face of somebody else and the forgiveness of somebody else that your failure is not final and there's hope change. There's hope for renewal. There's hope for your life being transformed into the likeness of Christ, no longer centered on self, more centered on Christ. And this is final word. This is why Paul is so adamant 
of putting our, our lives together in community. He's so confident that naming things, confessing to God, naming it, drains the power of it. Naming with one another those things, those, and exploring that with each other. What's really going on? He's so confident that the power of temptation will begin to drain out of those temptations because of verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. See, you have a new identity. And out of that confidence, we not only turn from, right? Turning from through confession to God, turning from the what of the vice list, turning from the why underneath it and dealing with each other, dredging up some of those things, dealing with yourself, right? But turning towards this vision of new life, something to turn towards. To embrace life, listen to this, at a full gallop. You see, a lot of times, what we think of, and I, I guarantee you, you know, when I was this age hearing this message, I would be like, yeah, I know what this is. It's like, you know, don't do all that stuff that I want to do because, you know, God doesn't want you to have fun, right? Because all that stuff is actually the stuff you want to do. And so it's like, you know, this is a thin life. This is like, you're calling it the abundant life. But look, if we're made for this, if we're made to stay back from the cliff, then what we're embracing, what we're embracing is not just do's and don'ts, shoulds and shouldn'ts, cans and can'ts, finger wagging. What we're embracing is life at a full gallop. A full gallop. The abundant life that we have to turn towards. Not tippy-toeing around issues. Not wimping out and saying, the train made me late. But with a robust sense of confidence that you are beloved. The shame cannot keep you from being honest and integrated as a person. To be able to have life on life with people in a way at a level that you've never experienced before is to live into the life that you were created for. Verse 12. You're beloved. I think this is, you know, I, I love this illustration of Washington, uh, George Washington. When he was uh, sitting for a portrait of him in later in life, right? George, George Washington said, paint me warts and all. What confidence. Don't idealize me. See, even the warts parts of you, even the shameful parts of you, even the parts of you that you would want no one to see. See, God is in the redemption business, and this is the vision of life at a full gallop. What's happening here, it's like, it's like what, 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 what Psalm 119.11 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. What's going on? It's not that, well, I'm just going to sort of just stop it because I'm going to name this, uh, this scripture verse, but it's saying I'm embracing a word about me that is about the new life that I have. And you begin to see that illustration of fitness begin to, to fill out here. That as we go, as we 
as we have this sense of, of the richness of God's word. It says, be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Verse, four, verse 16, let the ver, ver, uh, word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart. Do you see the richness of this? The gratitude, the life overwhelmed and over, overflowing with the richness of what God is promising, embraced and integrated into the human life. You see, there you begin to see the power against temptation. You think, well, gosh, I, I, I went out running, and I twisted my ankle, and I broke it. Well, I've been, uh, I realized I'd been sitting around for five years, and I hadn't been running, and I got up, and I decided I was just going to go for a five-mile run. Not a good idea. You see, this is an illustration for how, how to be spiritually fit. An integrated person, bringing God's word and the vision of life at a full gallop all the way into your life. You see, this is the third way we confess. We confess our sin to God, right? We confess the, that vice list. We confess to one another what's really going on. We begin to deal with ourselves, and then we confess what we believe and what God has done for us, and we begin to confess it and let that word dwell in us richly in such a way that it begins to take us over. Daily, getting up, putting on those running shoes, going for that walk. I'm saying spiritually, let it dwell in you richly. And you can see that, that all of these things need to be done together with other believers. And part of that is to be out in the open with what the new word that you're saying. You know, what does Paul say? I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for those who believe. It, Brene Brown, it, a lot of you are familiar with her. She says, shame corrodes the very part of us that believes we are capable of change. Shame corrodes the very part of us that believes. That's why we need to come together and confess not only our sin, but confess who is changing us from the inside out. See, vulnerability is the birthplace of innovation, she says. Birthplace of innovation, creativity and change. And so, that's one thing we can say about temptation. To understand that God's given us these good gifts and when we enjoy them in the wrong way, disordered way, to make an idol, as Calvin says, the heart is an idol factory, to make an idol of those good gifts and to enjoy the right thing in the wrong way. And we begin to ask ourselves, why are we doing that? What are those things, and why do we do them? And to deal with each other vulnerably. And then begin to replace what we thought we needed and believe that what God is providing for us is enough, more than enough. Well, then you begin to meet the daily rigors of life, life's temptation, without incurring a debilitating injury. As Emily Dickinson said this, she said, through the straight path of suffering, the martyrs even trod, their feet upon temptation, their faces upon God. Let's pray. Holy God, thank you for providing not only insight into those things that we do, 
but insight into why we do them as we live out this great faith life on life. But give us, Lord, the confidence to defeat the shame that so easily defines us that we may be defined by new life in Christ, that we may overcome temptation. In Jesus' name, amen.